Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. How firm a foundation, the hymn that we sang, one of the verses sings about as we go through deep water, that he will be with us no matter the woe. Well, friends, we're about to go through some deep water. So my prayer is that the Lord will give us wisdom over the next few weeks and months as we look at some very difficult issues in our culture, around us, and what the Bible says about how we respond to that. We were going to do this in the spring, but I felt it was important for us to focus on worship during the summer. And now we're going to talk about those very, very difficult issues, not just political and social and cultural issues. But I would like for you to pray that I will have wisdom as we look at these subjects, that God will reveal to us very clearly what our responsibility is. And for that reason, this morning, I thought instead of diving right into the topics, the first of which will be gender identity next week, I felt it was important for us to kind of frame it, frame the way we will look at these issues and what God calls us to be responsible to do. Would you pray with me? Father, as we begin this new series and as we look at your word and what it tells us about how you look at us and what you expect from us, and how, as we go forth to walk with you in a worshipful way to share your word, how you would have us do it. Give us wisdom, but also help us to be faithful to your word and to do it in a way that we will give a good witness to your will, which we know is good and acceptable and perfect. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was in the summertime. The scene is a courtroom where the judge looks at 12 white Caucasian men. They are about to leave and to deliberate the fate of a young Hispanic, an 18-year-old young man from the slums of New York who has been accused of murdering his father. And as they leave, they turn and they look at him, with some with a look of disdain. And he has told them about the weight of the decision that they're going to make because if he is convicted, he will face the electric chair. They retreat to a swelteringly hot room. There is no air conditioning to deliberate his fate. You probably know the name of the movie. It is about the 12 jurors. It is a classic. 1957, 12 Angry Men. The American Film Institute later voted this the second best courtroom drama of all time, after one that came not long after that with Gregory Peck in it, To Kill a Mockingbird. It starred Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb, E.G. Marshall, and a whole host of others that later became quite famous actors. As they then go into the room and take their first vote, you know the story probably. The vote was 11 to convict and one held out to exonerate, and that was juror number eight, who was Henry Fonda. And as they then begin to deliberate and to talk, the the jurors' prejudices are revealed, 
The power of persuasion becomes evident. And the question is this, is there a reasonable doubt about his guilt? And as they discuss, and juror number eight holds out, and he raises questions. One by one, the evidence that has been put forward is questioned. And one by one, they have not only questions, but they overturn the evidence. Did one witness really hear the altercation as a, an L train passed by? Was the elderly man with a limp capable of getting to the door and seeing what he said he had seen at the time he had said he had seen it? Had the woman who had been asleep in her bed and awakened to see and witnessed the murder had time to put her glasses on, and could she really see through the windows of the L train passing by the commitment of the murder? Was the pro prosecutor's evidence about the knife and the testimony given by the young man about what he'd done that night, was the prosecutor's case airtight, or weren't there weaknesses in it? And one by one, as the drama unfolds and the anger of at least 11 of these men, I think I would have called it 11 angry men, as it unfolds then, they become convinced of his innocence, or at least that he may not have been guilty, and of course, then he was not convicted. You know, what's behind this story there, it's very complicated. It's a, a wonderful, dramatic, black and white drama. It was uh, not even in CinemaScope. But one of the issues behind this is reasonable doubt. In the 8th century, there was reasonable doubt about Judah. There was no question about Israel. Israel was guilt, guilty of idolatry, and it had been ever since the inception, after, ever since the split of the two kingdoms. Assyria was rising to power and threatening all of the Middle East. Israel and Syria formed an alliance in order to oppose Assyria, and Judah did not join it. And in fact, this brought them into warfare with Israel. Judah then went to Assyria and asked to become a vassal under their protection. And then as Assyria attacked Syria and took Damascus in 732, and then 10 years later took Samaria and then dispersed the people, Judah survived. They even began to then recolonize parts of Israel and to extend her influence. And, and Judah even began to prosper, but she remained a vassal of Assyria, continued to pay heavy tribute to Assyria. As we come to Isaiah, the beginning of the book, the question is this, is there really a reasonable doubt about Judah's guilt? You see, they have abandoned the Lord, Isaiah says. You, they have relied on Assyria against Isaiah's advice. They probably not, have not fallen into the deep idolatry that later occurred under King Manasseh, so that may not be a charge against them at this point. But the rulers were derelict. They were rebelling against God, as we heard in the scripture this morning. Bribery and corruption drove the government. There was oppression of widows and orphans. Prosperity, yes, among the rich, but not, of course, among the poor. Rich, haughty women paraded their, their apparel and their gold through the streets of Jerusalem. The housing of the rich created urban sprawl that displaced the poor. There was carousing at night, hedonistic living, wine drinking into the early hours of the morning. But worst of all, their worship, as we have talked about for the last 14 weeks, was not meaningful. It was empty worship. Endless sacrifices that had no meaning. 
And this later in Isaiah causes him to proclaim for God, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So God then brings Judah to the bar. God brings his case to Judah and says, I want you to come to court and I'm going to present my case for you. And that is the background for the beginning of the book of Isaiah. And in the first chapter, near the end of that first section, then this is what the Lord says to Judah. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see what he has done in this courtroom scene where he calls Israel before him, just like Micah does a few years later, he almost mimics Isaiah. In Micah, the sixth chapter, before that great passage where, we, where the Lord asks through Micah, what does the Lord require of you? And of course it is to love mercy and to do justice and to walk humbly before God. The beginning of that scene is a court scene where Micah does much the same thing. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people, even with Israel. And of course, this is Judah. He will dispute You see, Isaiah 1 through 5 then lays out God's case against Judah. But before he does that, he invites Judah to come to the bar and to reason with him for a couple of reasons. He wants him to understand the nature of the charges that he is laying against them, and he wants to give them an opportunity to do something. What is he giving them an opportunity to do? What is he giving our nation the opportunity today as he calls our nation to the bar because this nation is in very much the same situation? He gives Judah and he gives America today the opportunity to do what? To repent. The summary indictment is found in chapter 5. Let me read it to you and see if this does not sound familiar. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and who take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound prophetic from seven and a half centuries before Christ and 21 centuries later, almost. Our nation is at that point. God, in this passage, I think, is telling us that he's calling our nation to the bar. God calls us to the bar. He also urges us to reason with him, to talk with him, to reason, as he called Judah to do so. And then God reminds us in this process, and as we listen over the next few weeks, 
about these issues and how we should engage them, he is telling his people, remember this, as you do it and as you go forward to speak, I remind you that you must be humble and you must be thoughtful in the way you do it. God calls us to the bar. You see, he warns us all. We're all accountable, not just Judah then, but America today. Not just Christians, but all of society, regardless of where they come from, what nation, what background, what ethnicity, no matter the gender, all of society and all of creation are called to the bar. God is the divine plaintiff today, and we are all his subjects, regardless of who we are, guilty, human, defendants brought to the bar of God. You know, Romans 10, the three puts it very clearly, quoting Psalm 14 and 50, 53, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. He's speaking hyperbolically. There are some, but they are hard to find. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, no, no, not even one. He calls them to the bar, and he calls us to the bar for a few reasons. First of all, to acknowledge his nature as the divine judge. God is the divine judge. He is absolutely perfect when he makes this call to the bar. His word is infallible. It's 100% accurate, and it embodies pure truth. His law is thoroughly right. It leads to right walking and worship of him. His witness is authentic, and only his witness is authentic. Only his witness presents the only genuinely accurate picture of reality. His judgments are impeccable. They cannot be questioned. They're totally accurate and impartial. He's the divine judge, and he is supernaturally objective about this. He is not swayed by popular opinion, he is objectively accurate in his judgment, supernaturally. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows all motives before any action is taken, and he knows all consequences before a sin is committed. He is super rational. He is above human reason. We know what Isaiah says later. His ways and his thoughts are not ours. His ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts. And though sometimes... When things happen around us that we don't understand and people say, why did God let that happen? Or when they think that God caused it to happen and it seems to be illogical, we know this. It is not irrational. You see, his ways are always unerring. They transcend human logic. We don't see the whole picture, but he does. So he calls us to the bar to understand this thing, these things about who he is as divine judge, but he also calls us to the bar to recognize our own limitations. We're finite creatures. We're limited in our knowledge and our wisdom. We're also fallen creatures, every one of us, as Joel proclaimed in his prayer of confession. You see, we are corrupt and fallen creatures who have corrupt wills. Not a one of our wills is pure. We blur God's truth and we sin daily. We have darkened minds. We see through a glass darkly, even those of us who are believers. We're incapable of rightly applying God's truth without his help. We need his wisdom as well as his word. So he calls us to the bar to understand who he is as the divine judge and who we are as, as the defendants. And then he calls us to the bar to understand his will and his purposes. 
What are his will and his purpose about? Well, first of all, he's caring in all of this. When he calls us to the bar, he desires the best for every one of us and for all of creation. His motive in doing so is love, not to overpower, not to oppress, but he loves us. He calls us to the bar because he is engaging in his personhood. He'll listen. This is not an empty invitation. He will listen when we come to the bar. If you have doubts, if you have questions, he wants to hear them. He will listen and he will respond. He is engaging because he wants to teach us. He wants us to know what's ultimately best for ourselves and for our own good according to his will. He calls us to the bar because he is also personal. His law is personal. You see, his law is not an austere and authoritarian code like a legal contract that seeks to find fault and guilt in us. No, his law is a living covenant that's rooted in his being, in his spiritual living word, Jesus Christ. His law is built on relationship. It is not just a law that's written on tablets of stone. He calls us to the bar to show us his mercy. There's a clear-cut choice in these two, three verses that we read. We have a choice. We either can consent and obey or refuse and rebel. But when we listen to that, we need to be careful. Consent and obey means this. It is not enough to consent to the Word of God. It's not enough to read the Word of God and accept His will. It is not enough to read His Word and desire to do it and consent in that way. It is not enough unless we consent and obey, unless we follow through. And then he says the other choice is to refuse and rebel. To refuse, that is, to be unwilling, means not to submit to him. And the consequence of that is always rebellion and sin. Yet when he presents this choice, there's clemency at the bar. We're already guilty. As Israel was guilty before they were invaded by Assyria. As Judah was guilty, but they thought that they were safe in their empty worship. We're already guilty. We're already in a state of denial in this country and refusal and rebellion. But he gives us, in America and in other countries around this world that are in the same situation, one last chance to receive what? His executive pardon. To wipe it all away and to forgive us of our sins. If we do what? If we repent, we know that he will forgive and bless. He calls us to the bar for all of these things. And then he urges us, God urges us, to reason with him. Well, that's really interesting, to reason. You see, reasoning is really an extension of worship. We have spent the last three and a half months talking about worship and walking with God, and we have defined ourselves as a priest, as priest in the priesthood of believers. And we finished last week with Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we talked about as priests, we present our bodies as what? Living sacrifices. Why? Because this is our, what kind of service? Reasonable service of worship. Remember that word logikos. It can be interpreted spiritual in one way, but it also means logical. You see, another part of worship is this. We serve God with our mind. We serve him with our logic. You see, the Father seeks what kinds of worshipers? Those who will worship him in spirit, yes, logikos, and also in truth, that is, the exercise of the mind to understand truth. He wants us to worship and serve him with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our what? Mind. And with all of our strength. He wants us to be fully mindful 
as we give evidence of his good and acceptable and perfect will. So you see, this is really an extension of what we've been talking about, worship. It's also an extension of worship because we are his servants in his spiritual house. We are his workmen that serve him. We are those living stones, but we're also servants in his spiritual house. And servants, before they give evidence for the master, must be approved to do so. We don't just go forth willy-nilly and just say whatever we want. We go with the imprimatur of God, and he approves us to do so. And before we do that, we have to have his approval. You see, this depends on our understanding the word of God. Not just reading it, but he wants us to understand it so that we will prove his will by being approved workmen. And you know the passage from 2 Timothy that tells us about that. Be diligent to present yourselves as what? Workmen, workpersons, men and women approved by God who do not need to be ashamed. Doing what? Accurately. Accurately handling the word of truth. It's not enough to read it. It's not enough to be able to quote it. It's not enough to memorize it. We must be prepared and equipped accurately to handle it. As we go forward and as we talk with those that do not believe the Word of God, they need to know that we, need, that we know how to handle it properly. You see, involved in this is the biblical concept of reasoning. He says, come now, let us reason together. The, the verb there means not just to think, not just to reflect, although it means that. It also means to engage intellectually, to consider all of the arguments that are presented, very much like in a courtroom, and to make an accurate assessment of what is being said. In other words, why do we do this? Why do we take the Word of God and why do we reason with it? It is so that we will come to this point where we can make a what kind of decision, friends? What kind of decision does God call us to make? The right decision according to His Word. You see, God wants us to go beyond just knowing His written words, not just blindly reducing them to a list of rules codified in human regulation. Jesus went on when He quoted Isaiah about the lips and heart. He said, they worship me in vain. Their rules are simply the teachings of men. You see, we can do that with God's Word. We can codify it into a list of rules, and that's all it is, tablets of stone, but he wants us to go beyond that. Instead, he wants us to reflect on his will and his purpose behind the law. As we look at each one of these issues, oh, we could proof text, and we could build a case that we want the Scripture to say about each one of these issues, but that's not the way God works. No, he wants us to understand what his Word says behind them. He wants us to go beyond the letter of the law, the mind, and the truth, and he wants us to understand the what? The spirit of it as well. He, he seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, God invites us to reason with him. Uh, here's an example. Job is another example. In, in Job, he says, oh, I, I would that I could reason with God. And later then in the book, he says that I might plead my case with him. And you know what? God let him. He let him plead and plead and plead and plead from chapters 3 through 37. And God did what? He patiently listened. And then God did what? Then he answered in chapters 38 through 41. He wants us to reason with him. He wants us to reason with his son. God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, to answer the questions and the doubts of the people in his day. He sends his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, 
to answer the questions and doubts that we have today. He wants us to reason. He wants us to think. And when we have doubts, he wants us to present them at the bar so that he can answer our questions. Jesus addressed their hidden doubts and their questions, even when they didn't voice them, as they reasoned in their hearts. He fully explained God's word. You have heard it said, and then he quotes some, some, some of the laws that have been based on Scripture. You've heard it said, but I go on to tell you more fully in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, Jesus constantly reasoned. He was the master logician. He used logic very, very incisively. You know, in the, in the event in Mark, the second chapter, where the four men bring the paralytic into the house and they lower him through the roof, he shocks the scribes by doing what? Well, is he going to heal him or not? And he doesn't do that. He does what? He forgives the man of his sin. And the scribes then are reasoning in their hearts. And they say, how can he say these things? He's blaspheming. Nobody can forgive sins except God alone. And Jesus knows their heart. He knows what they're reasoning in their heart. And then he answers by using logic and then action. What does he say to them? Well, what's easier to do? What's harder to do? He says, you know, it's easier to say a man's sin is forgiven than it is actually to heal a man and give evidence. Now, let, you watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the harder thing to prove the easier thing, and he does it, and he tells the man to get up, take his mat, and walk, and he does. And he, when he walks out, they were astounded. And Jesus doesn't say another word. But you see, he has made a logical case. His logical case is very simply this. If he can heal and do the hard thing that demonstrates God's power and he's able to do divine miracles, then certainly as God does, he also can forgive sin. The other miracle is this. They never even voice their questions and doubts. This morning, if you have questions or doubts in your heart, the Lord knows that they're there. And he's ready to answer. The miracle was Jesus knew their hearts and he answered the question that they never asked. You see, a key purpose of reasoning is to discern this. It's to discern what is right. And that's what we must be about in this series and to apply it. Human law does not make things right. Laws supporting slavery, slavery never made slavery right, even in biblical times. The Emancipation Proclamation did not make slavery wrong. Laws supporting the death penalty in 27 states today do not make the death penalty right. But laws in 23 states that are against the death penalty don't make the death penalty wrong. Laws in nine states and the District of Columbia that authorize physician-assisted suicide do not make that practice right. But laws in 41 states that prohibit the practice do not make it wrong. 40 Nazi, 400 Nazi laws written before the war against the Jews did not make Jewish persecution right. But folks, today in Europe, laws de that, that criminalize the denial of the Holocaust do not make genocide wrong. Overturning Wade, Roe versus Wade does not make abortion wrong. Roe versus Wade never made it right. What's the point? Human laws are necessary. They're necessary conventions that deem that things are either legal or illegal, but they do not make them right or wrong. You see, for there is an objective superstructure in all of reality that was embedded into creation by the God of all laws. It is right or it is wrong because of God's nature and what God says. 
and what he does to undergird the cosmos. You see, human laws don't make it right or wrong. And some human laws are inconsistent with righteousness, as we have seen. Cultural norms do not make things right or wrong. Political correctness doesn't make it right or wrong. The pressure from cancel culture doesn't make what we say right or wrong, no matter how woke somebody may be or not. Postmodern deconstruction of truth does not get rid of truth. It doesn't make things objectively or unobjectively true or false. What's the point? As we go through this series, our hope is that we will discover what God's Word, God's will, and God's purpose say are right. You see, God's eternal objective is truth, and it undergirds all of creation. It's based on His character and His will and His purpose. This truth is articulated in His written Word, and it's embodied in His subjective Word, Jesus Christ. This truth is conveyed and illuminated by His Holy Spirit. It's embedded, yes, in natural law by the Creator in His created order, and it is ingrained in our conscience that He has given us to think and to reason. But it all comes from God, and He determines what is right and what is wrong. Our responsibility in exercising human reason as we go through this series, I think, is very obvious. We do not determine by necessity what is right or wrong. God does. We need to discover it. We need to discern it as we read His Word to see what God determines is right or wrong. And God exercises us, uh, He encourages us in the process to exercise our what? Our minds and our reason. Not simply to take what other people say is right and wrong because they say it's right and wrong or wrong. So it brings us then down to the last point that God reminds us to be humble and thoughtful. We bear an awesome responsibility when we go out of here, worshipfully walking with the Lord to communicate His truth and to give evidence of His good and acceptable and perfect will. We need to be aware of some things. Number one, the principle of simplicity and complexity. God's basic message is simple. We we can obscure it. Sometimes we can cover it up with philosophy and systematic theology and all sorts of things. Systematic theology is not necessarily bad. But sometimes we can obscure it with our rules and all of our systems. We need to remember this from the very beginning as Luther and the Reformers, and as we say today, God's Word is sufficient unto itself to communicate its truth, sola scriptura. It is sufficient in the simple message of His truth. At the same time, God's wisdom is unfathomably deep. You see, unraveling the complexity behind that simple message is pretty profound. And applying it properly requires two or three things. As we go forth, we need to rely on our practical experience to understand the truth that God gives us. We need to exercise mature reasoning, and we need, above all, spiritual discernment. You see, God's Word is simple, but it's also complex. I have said this before. It's like Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes put once this way. For the simplicity that lies this side of complexity, I wouldn't give you a fig. But for the simplicity that lies on the other side of complexity, I would give my life. We know the simple message of the gospel. As we deal with these complex issues and he unfolds them to us, they are going to be complex. We're going to have to think through them carefully and be led by the Spirit to discern what is right from his word. 
There's some mistakes that we can make in handling God's Word unreasonably. They're obvious. One is rejection. There are people out there that reject God's Word. Sometimes they're intellectuals who think God's Word is irrational, unscientific, unsophisticated. Some reject God's Word because they're libertines. They're either immoral or amoral, and they oppose the ethical standards, and they chafe under them. Some reject God's Word. But those who believe God's Word also can make mistakes through misinterpretation, through ignorance, poor exegesis, lack of preparation, anti-intellectualism. There is no excuse for that in God's kingdom. Sometimes there's misinterpretation because of, of uh, skewed preconceptions, skewed worldviews, personal opinions. Sometimes there are misinterpretations because of a poor hermeneutic, because we're overly literal when we shouldn't be, or we're overly allegorical on the other hand. Sometimes we become too legalistic, and sometimes we tend to bend God's Word. There's no excuse for that. Sometimes mistakes are made not because of misinterpretation, but because of manipulation. People do, and Christians do, unfortunately, abuse God's Word for political, religious, and personal gain. Examples, fundamentalists reduce God's Word to a list of rules to control others. On the other hand, I'm going to use, I guess, a politically correct term, progressives on the other end of this, of this spectrum. Some would say extreme liberals. They tend to bend God's Word to accommodate social and cultural trends. This leads to what, friends? All of this manipulation leads to polarized argumentation based on human agendas. And guess what? It divides culture. Does that sound familiar? It divides the church. And instead of seeking to heal and forgive and bring understanding in our culture, some people use God's Word to divide and to browbeat people with what they call the truth. You see, God's course is reasonable. God's reasoning, what does it mean for Him to re be reasonable? And He calls us to reason. It doesn't mean to be moderate in all things. As Socrates said, we need to be moderate in most things, but not all things. It doesn't mean to elevate reason over revelation. It doesn't mean to be reasonable to the point that we can't accept miracles, reasonable to the point that, like Deus, we say that God is a God of reason, but He's not involved in the world. God's reasoning is not like that. God's reasoning is not worldly compromise. I know that we, we, we do. We compromise on things, but we don't compromise God's Word. You see, those that compromise using worldly bargaining bend God's truth to accommodate human expectations. Those who compromise in the wrong way avoid God's radical solutions and say they can't be possible. Those who compromise in a worldly way with inadequate worldly methods are trying to bring about world peace, which will never happen through those methods. God's reasoning is not moderation in all things. God's reasoning is not elevating reason above all. God's reasoning is not compromise according to the world. God's reasoning is this. It's consistent. You see, it's harmonious. It fits with His good will, His acceptable will, and His perfect will. That's reasonable. It's reasonable in the fact that it's dependable and reliable and faithful. We can always rely on God's Word. It's reasonable because it is equitable and fair to all. It shows no favor to one side or the other. It is even-handed. But it's not a kind of, of clinical even-handedness. It's also merciful. God's reasoning is accurate. It's always on target. It never bends one way or the other. It's never sidetracked by human agendas. God's reasoning is indivisible. It is unified. 
It is not going to be split by our human agendas. You see, Jesus showed us how to chart the way of God's wisdom. You know, in the temple, there were three occurrences. Let me speak very briefly about two of them. And he shows logic in both of these cases. And this gives us some insight as to how we should use the Word of God. First, the Pharisees come to him with their fundamentalism along with the Herodians, and they ask the question, should we pay taxes or not? They put him on the horns of a dilemma. Should we violate Roman law, or should we offend Jewish sensibilities? And you know what he said. He basically he took the coin. He said, do what? Render to Caesar those things that are Caesar's, and God to God those things that are God's. What was he saying? Do what's right. It's that simple. You see, it is not contradictory to serve Rome and also to serve God. You can be a good citizen of both kingdoms, but you know what's going to happen? If you do that, you're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to pay double. You can't get off the hook with one. You have to pay both. What logic? Then the Sadducees come to them with their libertinism and their deism. And you know the question, this woman was married, her husband died, she was married six more times, she was married seven times. So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? What is the dilemma? You see, if Jesus had said that he would be married to this one or that one, one, then he, she would have been committing adultery against all the others. If he, if he had said, well, she'll be married to all of them, then she would have been guilty of what? Polygamy. The assumption then by the Sadducees was, you see, heaven's going to be a place where things like this will happen and sin could occur, and heaven, and heaven cannot be that way. Therefore, the resurrection is not true. You see their logic? And Jesus just looks at them and very simply says, you're wrong, and what's the basis? You're ignorant. You don't know God's power, and you don't know His Word. You don't know His power because, you see, we're not going to be like we are here on this earth. God has the power to transform us into beings that are like angels. He doesn't need human procreation in order to populate heaven. He has plenty of saints to populate it. We don't have to be married in heaven. Wow, what logic. And then what about God's Word? Have you not read in the book of Moses how God spoke to him and he said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're greatly mistaken. You're ignorant. <laughs> You see, God was speaking to Moses five to six centuries after Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph had died. And yet he spoke in the present tense. And that means then that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, and he's the God of those that are alive. And that reconfirms then the resurrection. Jesus was the master logician. Jesus used reasoning, and if he did, we should too. There's some reasonable methods, and let me close with this. There's some reasonable methods and attitudes that we should assume, I think, as we go through this series. The first of those is we should use logical methods. We should study hard and know God's Word accurately and do good exegesis. Not just I, but you as well. We must interpret His Word in the light of His living Word, Jesus Christ. He is the lens. We must be guided by God's reason, the logicon, to understand the Word in spirit, and in truth. We must be illuminated by the Holy Spirit so that we can proclaim it properly, so that when the words come out and we speak with friends about such difficult issues as gender identity and homosexual behavior and those sorts of things and what the Bible says, that He will give us exactly the right words to use. We need to avoid human agendas and systems that obscure the word's clarity. You read a lot of books by Christians on these issues, and folks, I'm almost embarrassed to read some of them. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them 
try to browbeat people with a huge club of truth in such a way that it begins to sound very hateful. There's not much love in it. No, we need to avoid those human agendas and those personal emotional feelings behind it. We should not manipulate God's Word to incite or to polarize and divide for personal advantage. I think those should be our methods. And our attitudes, the Bible makes very clear, are very simple. We should be meek, we should show mature love, and we should show kindness. James tells us, in approaching his word, we need to be very humble. You see, we don't have a monopoly on wisdom, do we? No. In humility, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, James says. Mature love. We're, we're very quick to quote Ephesians, the fourth chapter. We just covered this in our evening series. We're to speak the truth in love, and that's true. But we need to read the rest of the passage. It's not just love. It's what kind of love? It's mature love, mature love in Christ. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Jesus Christ. We need to grow in our understanding of Christ's word. And we need to do it in kindness. He tells Timothy that we need to engage others respectfully. Be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and gently, gently correcting those who are in opposition. Because our purpose is to do what? To reveal the good and acceptable and perfect will of God so that they might repent and come to know the Lord as Savior. So I think as we go through this series, Isaiah is telling us something. We need to seek humbly to understand God's truth, to know what is right, not just legal, but what is right. We need to be open to God revealing to us, and this will be challenging, maybe some radical truths that we did not know before. He's going to stretch us. We need not to let our minds be darkened by human systems, worldviews, and preconceptions. We need to be careful that we don't use the Word of God unnecessarily to polarize and divide culturally and to fight just to fight because of personal agendas. And we need to engage those that disagree with us with humility, with love, with respect, and kindness. Does that maybe sound like a good framework for us to use as we go forward and we look at these issues? I pray that the Word of God will guide us every step of the way. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.